Um, but have you ever watched something with a false ending? Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, so you think that it's ended and it sort of carries on. Well, I'm a, a big fan of the Lord of the Rings films, uh, but certainly the last film uh, it's good, but it has about eight different endings. You think that it's finished when they've got the ring to the, the mountain, but it sort of carries on. And then you think it's finished when they're in the Shire, but it sort of carries on. Or if you've watched Sherlock over Christmas, it, it all seems to be resolved and sorted out, and then suddenly somebody remembers something or thinks of something, and it all kicks off again. It happens with music performances as well, doesn't it? So bands have uh, encores. Everyone claps, and then they come back, don't they? They... Uh, come back again. My parents once went to a, a gig where they came back six times uh, after the end of the show. Uh, that was for comedy value, but there are, there are bands that virtually do as long as their encore as they do at the beginning. And I'm sure we all know that sermons sometimes have false endings too, don't they? Uh, they seem to have stopped, they seem to be finishing, uh, and then they sort of start back up again, and finally, and then half an hour later, you're still going. Well, this morning, you might be thinking that we come to the end of our hitchhike through the Bible with some of the passages that we look at. Uh, you know, you might think that it's uh, about to end. Well, sorry to spoil it, but as we go through here, when you think there's an ending, it's probably a false ending, hopefully not in the sermon, uh, but in the passage. As lovely as it is, we won't be getting back to the garden this morning. The kingdom is not coming uh, in the passages that we look at, at least uh, not here. But we've seen, though, that the kingdom of God is the goal. We've seen, haven't we, that uh, we've seen it in creation. If you remember, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. Uh, God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. Adam and Eve in the garden, being ruled by God's word. We saw it broken in the rebellion, didn't we? Uh, as they reject God's rule, as they are cast out of the garden. We see it in Cain, in Noah's flood, in the Tower of Babel. We see the extent of mankind's sin as it grows. And then last week we saw with Abraham the promised kingdom. God steps in and makes these unconditional promises to Abraham. Promise of a great people living in the promised land uh, who would enjoy his rule and be a blessing to the whole world. And he'd rule them by his covenant. So do you see how this is coming together? Well, between then and what we're looking at this morning, while you were away, if you like, uh, Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had a son called Jacob. Who's also called Israel. Jacob had 12 children, including Joseph, who brought the family to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. And these 12 become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're going to fast forward about 400 years. We're not going to start with the passage that we had read to us, but we're going to start at the beginning of Exodus. Uh, so this is the partial kingdom we're looking at this morning. This is part one. We should give you a clue. It is definitely a false ending. Um, we're going to see God's people in Egypt. So if you turn to Exodus chapter 1, the page numbers are up there as well. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. I'll read it to us. Actually, we'll read 8, eight, eight to 14. Oh, we'll read 1 to 14, God. I'll try the name. Oh, it's, it's only the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's uh, store cities. They built Pharaoh's. Uh, they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So we see, oh, sorry, fourteen as well. Um, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what do we see here? Well, first of all, we see about God's people, don't we? God's people here are, are numerous. You see that there in verse 7? They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. They are huge at this point. Now, 70 entered, but at this point, certainly by the time that they leave, uh, they're probably just shy of a million people. That's roughly the population of Leeds, taken as a, as a whole, with the bits of Bradford probably thrown in. And a million was a lot of people in those days. The world's population at that time is estimated at 100 million at most. Some only estimated at about 27 million. So this is huge. Egypt's population was probably only 2 or 3 million. So they were either about half or a third of the population. Uh, they were a massive number in this land. And this had been God's promise to Abraham, if you remember. He promised them, didn't he? In Deuteronomy 1 verse 10... Uh, you'll see there that it says his promise is fulfilled. The Lord, your God, has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. That was said of the, the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, if you like. It was said of the Israelites here, uh, roughly this number. God had promised to Abraham to grow them and grow them. And here they are grown. So this part of the promise is almost presented as complete uh, as we start the story. God has got a massive people. He's got a huge people, like he promised Abraham. But the other parts, well, we've still got some work to do, haven't we? What about God's place? Well, they are outside of God's place, aren't they? They're not in Canaan, which God had promised to them. They're in Egypt. Now, knowing the rest of the Bible story, we sort of look back and think, Egypt, yeah, they're the baddie, they're the villain. But actually, Egypt, sometimes in the Bible, is a place of refuge. So Abraham went there for, for refuge in his life. That Jesus and his family go there for refuge in Matthew's gospel. But in Genesis, actually, Egypt is, uh, and does still have a bad taste in your mouth, if you like, for Egypt. Uh, in Genesis, Egypt is the son of Ham. Uh, so there is a guy called Egypt. That's a bit of a name for a child, isn't it? But he's the son of Ham who was cursed by Noah. He's the brother of Canaan, uh, that Egypt, who's to, who's to be wiped out by the Israelites. Isaac's warned not to go to Egypt. And Egypt is the place where Ishmael, uh, Isaac's brother, who, who uh, is not part of, of God's people in that way, that's where he gets his wife from. So there are sort of clues that Egypt might not be so good in Genesis. Now in Exodus we see its true character. We see it bearing fruit, if you like, as we see it turning on Abraham's descendants. So they're in Egypt. They're not in God's place at the moment. They're, they're away from it. What about God's rule and blessing? Well, they're not experiencing God's blessing, are they, from our passage? They're living under slavery. And it's quite harsh slavery here. There were no employment laws. There were none of that sort of thing. And we've seen this thing repeated throughout history, haven't we? 
minorities who are vilified and used by the rest of the people, deprived of rights, deprived of freedom, often deprived of their family as they're sent to different parts of the country. And this sort of thing thrives in an atmosphere of that absolute monarchy, doesn't it? Countries where there's that authoritarian uh, feel to it. Well, Egypt was certainly one of those nations. They viewed their pharaoh, their king, as a god. He could say whatever he liked, his word went. But it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that they're experiencing a hard time. uh, Because that's often what happens in these situations. But also doubly because God had told Abraham that this would happen. So again, on the back of your sheets, you'll see Genesis 15. Just as God is making promises to Abraham, we looked at this passage last week, just after the bit we looked at. It says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, actually. God had already told Abraham that this would happen. How much they were aware of this, we don't know. Uh, certainly somebody was aware of it, because they wrote it down afterwards. But it's showing us that this is not outside of God's plan. It's not like God's plan has gone wrong here, by them being in Egypt, by them being under slavery. Actually, this is part of God's plan. God is not failing to keep his promises, if you like, by having them here. Actually, he's working them out on a much bigger time scale. But it was not a pleasant experience in Egypt for the Israelites. And we see in the following chapters that come along that Pharaoh effectively tries an early version of ethnic cleansing, doesn't he? The murder of Israelite children to wipe them out. Male children, so that if any women were born, they would have to have children with Egyptian men. The children would then be raised Egyptian. It was a sort of idea of assimilating them into the people. The Israelites would cease to be a people in a generation if that worked. And it doesn't make it any less horrific that this was like three and a half thousand years ago. Babies are still babies. This must have been awful for the Israelites. Could you imagine being in a state where the state murdered your children? How would you even survive mentally? This was awful. But they're still under the covenant with Abraham. God is still with them, even in this awful situation. So if you look at Exodus 2.24, it's on the back of your sheet again. They're still with, uh, God is still keeping his promises. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now God hasn't taken his eye off the ball. It's not as though he'd sort of forgotten about them. When he says that he remembered, it's the idea of him, he's going to act on it. He's bringing it to the front of his mind. And this is what makes the difference. God is going to step in and act. Now, he might have stepped in anyway, because this was so horrific. But he's definitely stepping in. The certainty of him stepping in, because of the covenant, because of the promises that he'd made to Abraham. So God does act. God sends ten plagues against the Egyptians, culminating in the final plague, when all the firstborn of the Egyptians are killed. And the firstborn of Israel are passed over. That's where we get our phrase, Passover from. The Israelites had to kill a spotless lamb and paint their doorposts with the blood. And we were just singing, weren't we, about the spotless lamb. Uh, we talked about the Lord Jesus being that one. It's a wonderful picture of, of Jesus' death. I know we're sort of stepping out of our um, hitchhike through the Bible, if you like, but you can't really miss this, can you? It's a wonderful picture of Jesus' death, the spotless lamb of God, 
slain for us at Passover, not a bone broken like they were told. But the interesting thing is that all the way through Exodus, you won't find a prophecy of this lamb to come. We call it a type or a shadow, that's what we sang about in one of the other songs, the ancient shadows are fulfilled. The lamb that rescued them, the lamb that helped them at the end of the Passover, points us to the real lamb, points us to the Lord Jesus. It's not that they're not real, but they're there to point us to something else. So it's a bit like a signpost. If you get a signpost in a road that says, you know, Otley this way, Ilkley this way, you're probably somewhere in in Weston (laughs) or somewhere in Burley. Uh, But the signpost is real, isn't it? it? It really is there, but the purpose of the signpost is to point you somewhere else. And the purpose here of the Passover, the purpose here of the Lamb is to point us to Christ. Point us to his rescue uh, of us. So God rescues his people from Egypt, parts the Red Sea, and leads them into the wilderness of Sinai. And that's where we meet them next. So the next one is God's people in the wilderness. And for this we're going to look at that passage that we looked at uh, just before Exodus 19. This really is a whistle-stop tour of Exodus. So what do we see here? Well, again, we've got God's people. But here they are made his people. It's almost like a marriage ceremony, isn't it? He calls them his treasured possession. Uh, Do you see that there in verse 5? Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. They're special to him. Of all the peoples of the earth. God owns everything, doesn't he? He has all the peoples. But these are the ones that he has chosen. And they're not special in and of themselves. The book of Exodus makes that really clear as you see how they act. But they are special because they are his. He will make them his treasured possession. It's more like a a keepsake, isn't it? You know what a keepsake is? So perhaps if if you're married, you might have your first cinema ticket that you ever went to the cinema with, with your wife, or, uh, you know, if you've, you've got a first card, or, or something like that. Things that have value to you, but they're not valuable in themselves. Well, that's like the Israelites. Obviously, they have value as human beings, but what makes them special is that they're God's people. They're his treasured possession. They're valuable to him. Of all the people, they are his people. And we're given a description of what they are to be like. There to be a kingdom of priests. You see that there in verse 6? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now you might have done this in life groups a little bit, but priests are mediators between God and man. And the idea there is that they are, they are to be a blessing, a channel of blessing to the nations. God speaking to the world through them. Like a prophetic voice crying out to the world. They were for, to fulfil the promises to Abraham to be a blessing to all the world, to all the families of the world. A light to the world that shone uh, to show people God, to be mediators between God and man. That's the picture that we get here of what Israel was to be. But they're also to be a holy nation. You see that again in verse 6, and you shall be to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're in some senses set apart from the rest of the world, different from the world around them. So they are, they're made different by the fact that God has chosen them, but then they're to live differently. Uh, and we'll see it spelt out, won't we, in, in chapter 20, the way that they're to live with the Ten Commandments. But they're to be characterised by their holiness, 
He could have said special people, couldn't he? He could have said faithful people. But he says his holy people, his holy nation. We see a glimpse of the holiness of God, don't we, in our passage, as we see the mountains sort of cordoned off. So different, so otherworldly, if you like. God's otherliness is really seen. And they are to be different, they are to be distinct. They're to reflect his image as a father, sorry, as a son does his father. And actually they're called the son of God all the way through the book of Exodus. But here they're called a holy nation. They're to be holy, they're to be different. They're to reflect God's character. So that's God's people. What about God's place here? Well, they're sort of on the way, aren't they? They're en route. Uh, Here they are at Sinai in the wilderness. Uh, And this really is still a work in progress, really, as as the promises go. They may not be in Canaan, but then, sorry, they may not be in Canaan, but they're not in Egypt, are they? They haven't taken possession of the land, but they are en route. And we'll see in a few moments, they're going to spend 40 years en route, actually only though it's a few days walk. Now, fascinatingly, this wilderness location that we have here is one of the few places that we're actually described as being as Christians. So, do you know that song, These Are the Days of Elijah? Yeah, you ever sung that one? Except for they're not really, not in the Bible. Um, So I can sort of see what the song is getting at. But in the Bible, really, the way that it describes our period is the days in the wilderness. That's how we're described. We're in the wilderness years, if you like. We're out of the city of destruction, but we're not in the celestial city. We're en route, which is why the Bible describes us as pilgrims. And in Hebrews, where it talks about this, we're exalted not to harden our hearts as our fathers did in the wilderness. As though we're there in the wilderness with them. So as we look at this period, we must be careful not to just dislocate ourselves from them. Because actually we're linked to these people. This is a bit like what we are in our time. We live in our wilderness years, if you like. And we're not to do as they did. That's the point that Hebrews makes uh, of that. What did they do? Well, we can see them, can't we? They're tempted to grumble. They're tempted to turn back. They're tempted to go after other things. And we can feel that, can't we, in our time. And yet, they are on their way to the promised land. Think about it in terms of us as Christians. We're not what we should be as Christians, are we? But by God's grace, we're not what we were. We're not yet in Canaan but were not in Egypt. And that's the position that they were in too. So they're in the wilderness here. What about God's rule and blessing? Well, God gives his rule in chapter 20, uh, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. God shows them what it's like to be his people. He expresses his rule through his law. And it's really showing us that God cares about how they live. God hasn't just saved them, God saved them for something, to live as his people. So God's not indifferent to their morality, how they treat him, how they treat each other. And what would it be like if everybody actually lived like this? What would Israel be like if people did follow his law, putting God first, no lies, safe homes, no burglars, safe relationships, no adultery, respect where respect is due? Wouldn't you want to live in a world like that? There's no policemen, because there are no murders, no burglars, no frauds. No private eyes spying on partners. No truancy officers, because children listen to their parents. No need for those polygraphs that you get on Jeremy Kyle, because nobody lies. Probably no Jeremy Kyle, either. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a great world? (laughs) 
But the law here is supposed to be a blessing. It's not a set of rules to spoil their fun. If they actually live like this, they would be blessed. It would be a wonderful place to live. So to live under God's rule is to be blessed. That was the idea. And God also makes a new covenant with them. And this one, unlike Abraham's, is a conditional covenant. It's the same content as the Abraham uh, promises. So they're going to be a people, great people, in the land of Canaan, enjoying his rule and blessing. But unlike Abraham's covenant, there are conditions beyond the sign. So if you remember last time, uh, circumcision was the sign. Well, here there are obligations beyond that. They were obliged to obey this law to enjoy God's blessing. And if not, the books actually spell it out that they will be cursed. They will lose the land that they're in and sent into exile. They will lose the blessing. The crops won't grow. Nations will invade them. The problem is that even though they say they're going to obey, uh, as they do in this in chapter 19, actually we'll see later that they're unable to obey. Even while Moses is up the mountain, only days after being given the Ten Commandments, They've already made an idol in the form of a golden calf. When they're told to go into the land, they refuse to go. Only Joshua and Caleb are up for it. The whole generation are cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Only the next generation will make it in, along with Joshua and Caleb. And we're left wondering, really, by the end of this, how is God going to keep his promises to Abraham if they're now conditional on Israel's obedience. It's almost made God's job harder, isn't it? When it just depended on him, we could be sure, couldn't we? We could be certain. But now it depends on the people obeying as well. And things are not looking good, are they? Israel seems bent on disobeying. And yet they need to obey to receive the promises. And if they don't receive the promises, then how can God keep his How on earth is God going to do it? Well, we're only going to see this as we carry on through uh, our Bible overview, as we carry on through our hitchhike through the Bible. But we do get a bit of a glimpse that God is able to do this. So we're going to fast forward 40 years uh, plus, and we're going to see God's people in the promised land. God's people in the promised land. This is Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Joshua chapter 21, 43. 45. This is what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. The Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So what about God's people here? Well, they're still numerous. uh, Hence things like the book of Numbers, if you ever wonder what that's there for. How many thousands of each tribe? But they're not the same people who left Egypt, except for Joshua and Caleb. I love the story of Caleb. Caleb gets his own mountain. Uh, in the promised land, and even though he's in his 80s, he's still wanting to co- go and take it. I'd quite like to meet that guy where he gets a glory. Still in his 80s, wants to go and take it. All the original adults, though, apart from them, 
have perished in the wilderness. Even Moses himself was not allowed to enter as he disobeyed God in the wilderness. So here, these are their children that we're following. So that's God's people. What about God's place? Well, finally, we are now in God's place, aren't we? The land of Canaan. They finished their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. They crossed over the River Jordan and God parted it like he parted the Red Sea. God is with them now as he was with them then. And they have taken the promised land with God's help. The stories of Jericho and Ai and others. So they're now in the land flowing with milk and honey. God has granted them victory and they're now in the place that God has promised them. What about God's rule and blessing? Well, they're enjoying rest. Do you notice that? Verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. I'll tell you a bit more about that tonight when we look at the genealogy in Genesis. Uh, But for now, can you see that they've got this idea of rest? That was the goal of creation, if you remember from the first week. The seventh day, the day of rest, enjoying his place. It's the very thing that they're looking to enter, isn't it? It's not just that they're there, it's that they're enjoying rest there. And no wonder they're enjoying rest. Look at verse 45. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Well, that's it then, isn't it? All the promises have come to pass. That was a short overview, wasn't it? Three weeks. This is surely the end of the story. However, this is our false ending, isn't it? The book of Joshua goes on. There's Joshua 22, Joshua 23. We're going to see there's a near civil war. We're going to see the remnants and their inability to serve God, their inability to cast out the nations. The rest of the Bible's going to go on, isn't it? The next book is the book of Judges with a depressing cycle. As Israel gets worse than the Canaanites that they displaced. We're going to get judges like the coward Gideon, the thug Samson, the assassin Ehud. That's the leaders. What about the people? So there is some sort of rest in Joshua. There is some sort of fulfilment. But it's not the full thing. And the New Testament tells us as much if we're left in any doubt. So on the back of your sheets again, Hebrews 4 verse 8. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Maybe go and read that in a bit more context when you look at it. But it's saying basically that Joshua gave them some sort of rest. But it wasn't the real rest that we were looking for. There's another rest that God is speaking of, something bigger and yet to come. If you like, this is just a staging post on our hitchhike. It's a bit like uh, if you're into to mountain climbing. I know Robin is because you... Was it three peaks yesterday? Oh yeah, okay. But, well, you know, climbing up a hill, you can climb up a hill even if you're walking, not, not sort of climbing. But when you climb to a peak, have you ever had that experience uh, where you, you sort of think, right, this is the peak, this is the peak. Uh, you can see it, you can see it, you think you're nearly there and you get there on the top of it and then you realise actually that's not the peak. Actually the peak is beyond it. Well, it's a bit like that here. They've got to a peak. But now we realise actually the peak is somewhere off in the distance. This is just a a mini peak. This is just a staging post on the way. And there are going to be two and a half of these peaks as we go through uh, our our Old Testament in this this part of the overview. And next week we're going to visit the other one and a half. We're going to see another staging post and a sort of half a staging post. Another peak and a bit of a false peak as well. But what can we take so far from this stage uh, on our hitchhike? 
But what if you're here this morning and uh, you're hurting, things are, are being really hard at the moment? Well, we can remember from this that God cares for his people, can't we? We've seen that. He hears their cry. He provides what they need. And this care has not been based on their spiritual performance. It's been based on his promises, hasn't it? It's not been an easy ride for them, but it's the best ride. The one that teaches them to trust in God. And it's the same for us, isn't it? God cares for us. God provides for us, even on our worst days. Even on the days when we fail him in so many ways. Because it's not based on our spiritual performance. It's based on his promises, like it was for the Israelites. What about if you're doing okay? What if you feel like you're doing well spiritually? Well, it's a good reminder that God has standards for our lives, isn't it? We're saved for something. When we're feeling okay, actually, sometimes that's the most dangerous time, isn't it? Like they just got the commandments. They were feeling fine. Uh, but actually, that was their most dangerous time. We need to remember that God cares about how we live. And what if you're here this morning and you feel uh, you haven't looked into uh, Christianity much, or perhaps you're, you're seeking, and you feel like you're a good person? I think most of us feel, in some senses, that we're good, because we compare ourselves to the people around us. But it's worth remembering here that God's rescue was not based on Israel's goodness. We see that in the wilderness as we see how they fail. Even Moses, who we so look up to in different ways, was not perfect, was he? For God's rescue, it didn't matter how good or bad you've been. Think about the the Passover lamb. Think about the Passover that we talked about. Good Egyptians, by their standards, with no blood on their doorposts, perished. Bad Israelites, by our standards, with blood on their doorposts, lived. What matters is what you do with the blood. For us, that's the blood of Christ. He shed his blood for us. And you can apply it to the doorpost of your life, if you like, and follow him. Or you can face God's judgment alone without Christ. I know which I choose. I chose it a number of years ago. But what if you're here this morning... And you don't feel a good person. You feel like you failed. Well, you need to hear the same thing, don't you? God's rescue was not based on Israel's goodness. For God's rescue, it did not matter how good or bad you've been. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And unlike the Israelites who died in the wilderness, you can enter God's rest. You can be part of God's kingdom. Now, this might have been a false ending uh, here in Joshua. Uh, But we know the real ending, don't we? Eternity with God in the new creation. The real promised land, if you like. And one day, you can land safely there, on the other side. Enjoy the rest in the new creation. You can know that peace with God. But meanwhile, we're a pilgrim, aren't we, in the wilderness? And that's the theme of our last song. As we close, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. You might have wondered what this song was about. It's picking up uh, the imagery that we've been talking about this morning. Guide me, O that great Jehovah. Jehovah's just another word for God. Pilgrim through this barren land. And then you get the last verse, don't you? When I tread the verge of Jordan, as though passing over, bid my anxious fear subside, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. We're going to get there. So let's stand and sing.